0: Hello, welcome to Head On History. I'm your host, Ali A. Alomi. If you were just joining us or a regular listener, just remember that you can join in the conversation using social media. Uh, You can follow me on Instagram or Twitter at A-A-O-L-O-M-I and use the hashtag HeadOnHistory. I'll be reading some of your questions, comments in upcoming episodes. Uh, Before we get started, I actually wanted to give a couple shout-outs to uh, all the wonderful people who have been leaving reviews and giving me feedback on the podcast. I'm going to read a few um, from the podcast podcast uh app or from iTunes. I'm not going to read all of them uh just a couple uh every once in a while just to give a shout out and let you guys know that I uh, I've actually listened. So the first one is C Alexandra D Uh, Hopefully I haven't uh, totally butchered your name or username or handle or whatever it is. You hip kids call it. Uh, She writes, or he writes, Ali hits on many crucial, often glossed over topics within his podcast that are relevant to the greater understanding of the development of Islam as a key religion and the development of the Middle East slash Central Asia as a cultural masterpiece. He shows his incredible knowledge, stays relevant, and just maybe some someone that could reach into today's media in order to have another authority on Islam I also thoroughly enjoy all the nerdy allusions he makes. You are making me blush, C. Alexandra D. You are awesome, and I am so happy that you tune in. Hopefully we continue to impress you, and you continue to enjoy the show. It's the reason why I'm doing it. Um, the next review is from Accomplished Man. This has been the best podcast on this topic, hands down. I've been waiting for someone to do a podcast on the history of Islam that approaches the topic from a historical and academic perspective. Ali is witty, funny, and makes even Dry topics, fun to listen to. Season one was great. Thank you, Ollie. Well, thank you, accomplished man. You are awesome, and I love that you are enjoying the podcast. You guys make the podcast worth it. So, I just want to give a couple shout outs. I'll be doing a couple more uh, next episode, just so you guys know that I do read the reviews. I take everything that you say on board, and I check out the hashtag and adjust accordingly. So, let's get dive into our topic. This episode, I want to talk to you about the hijab. That's right, you have yet another case of a man going to cover the hijab. As if Muslim women have not heard men talk about the hijab all their lives. I mean, uh, how many times I've had friends and colleagues talk about going to the mosque and all the the khutbahs or the sermons are about how women need to be wearing hijabs and modest. So, yet again, here I am. I am going to be mansplaining the hijab. I am fully aware of that as a straight dude, this is going to be a kind of a weird topic, but hopefully, I can introduce some historical analysis to the idea. So, even though I'm going to call this episode "History of the Hijab," I'm actually going to talk about religious garb in general. So, I'll be talking about men as well, because it's, as it's less least understood, is that the hijab doesn't just refer to women; it also refers to men. So let's talk about this idea of religious modesty and garb and religious clothing and how that has been transformed over the years. We're going to start off with two relevant verses from the Quran and then we're going to historicize those verses as well as look at the early Islamic period to see if we can understand any details about that time period. So the first one is Surah 24, verse 30, and it says, Tell the believing men to lower their vision and guard their private parts. That is pure for them. Indeed, Allah is acquainted with what they do. So here we have a very clear injunction on men to lower their gaze, to be modest, and to guard their private parts. Um, It is not clear how they're supposed to guard it, but there is an indication that there's some type of clothing that men are supposed to do wear in order to be modest as well. The verse goes on to ayat, or verse 31, and tell the believing women to lower their vision and guard their private parts, and to not expose their adornments, except that which is necessary, appears thereof, and to wrap their head covers across their bosoms. Now, this verse is often used to justify the head covering for women. The word, however, that's used here is not hijab. It's actually chamar. Chamar or chamar, depending on if it's plural or singular, refers to a type of clothing that Arabian women wore in desert culture. It was often a scarf that was thrown over the shoulders and occasionally would be worn on top of the head. This was not unique to women. Men wore this particular garb too, That wasn't called a khimar. Because of the kind of drawn environment, because of the harsh circumstances in environment and weather, it was very important for people to cover their heads and cover their faces, or to have something readily available that they can protect themselves from the harsh weather. It's interesting here that most translations, especially English translations of this verse, immediately refer to the chamar as head cover. And it is certainly true that many times the chemar was used as a head cover, that it was placed on top of the head. But the injunction here, or the commandment, if you will, is that they are to cover their bosoms. The head covering is taken as a given. It's granted that men and women would wear some type of head covering, but the only real clear commandment is the covering of the bosom. So it's not a, not a verse that generally actually refers to in its historical context, saying that women must cover their heads or their hairs. It simply assumes that that is already part of the culture. And that's important because many people use this verse to refer to the hijab when in actuality it really isn't. It's referring to a different type of modesty, really the covering of the bosoms. Now, let's historicize this. This particular verse actually refers specifically to a moment in the Prophet's life, in in Muhammad's life, in which uh, Aisha, one of his wives, his youngest wife, was faced with a series of rumors. She was left behind at one battle and she was picked up by someone and brought back into the city. And that led to all sorts of rumors being spread. And then in response to those rumors, this verse was revealed. In other words, this verse fundamentally has more to do with speaking about people's virtue and character than it does physical. But it also refers to the idea that men and women must guard themselves and guard one another, that their virtue is tied up to this kind of idea of talking to one another, uh, keeping oneself uh, kind of protected. So this is a particularly interesting verse and one that we're going to see throughout this episode as being reinterpreted over the years. But I wanted to start off with that one and historicize that it has more to do with rumors and guarding virtue than it does with specific uh, adornments or specific uh, garb that you need to wear. It's actually not clear what this kind of guarding that men and women are supposed to do other than the chamar, which is a scarf, must cover the bosom. Now, why the Quran mentions the bosom in particular is because we know that many of the different styles of the chamar often involved wrapping it and throwing it behind the shoulders so that the uh, chest area was usually open, and this is a, uh, attested to in various kind of historical accounts of how women, Arab women dressed. Is that the chamar usually went on the shoulders but behind, and so it never or was or on the shoulders and went down between the armpits. So it didn't actually cover the chest. By saying cover the chest, you're creating uh, a sort of protection uh, for for the bosom. The next verse that is uh, often cited is Surah 33. Ayat 53. This is the actual verse of the hijab. If you look at the tafsirs of the Quran, that is the commentaries of the Quran, this is the verse that refers to the hijab. And it actually says O you who believe, do not enter the house of the Prophet, except when you were permitted for a meal without awaiting its readiness but when you are invited, then enter and when you have eaten, disperse without seeking to remain for conversation that indeed was troubling for the Prophet, and he is shy of dismissing you, but Allah is not shy of the truth, and when you You ask his wives for something, ask them from behind a partition. This is the key here. The word partition is the word hijab. That's where we get the word hijab from. It's this particular verse. So what does this mean? This has nothing to do with people's garb. It has nothing to do with what people are wearing, but it does have something to do with, um, you know, manners, if you will. So we have to actually turn to the hadiths to help explain this a little bit. And this is, the hadith is narrated by Ibn Shehab. Uh, uh, and he argue he says that Anas said, I am the most knowledgeable of the people about the hijab, that verse. Abaya ibn Qalb used to ask me about it when the Messenger of Allah, peace and blessings be upon him, married Zainab bint Jash, whom he married in Medina. He invited the people to a meal after the sun had risen. The Messenger of Allah, peace and blessings be upon him, sat down and some men sat around him. After the Prophet had left after the people had left, until the messenger of Allah stood up and walked a while, and I walked with him, until he reached the door of Aisha's apartment. Then he thought that he had they had left, so he went back, and I went back with him, and they were still sitting there. He went back again, and I went with him, until he reached the door of Aisha's apartment. Then he came back, and I came back with him, and that they had left. Then he drew a curtain between me and him, and the verse of the hijab was revealed, and this is in uh, Al-Bukhari 5149. So what is this referring to? This is actually, the verse of the hijab has more to do with the public and private space than it has actual physical garments. Muhammad, as his prophetic career took on, his home became a center. Now we often think of the mosque as this kind of A church like place, but that's not how the mosque originally was. The mosque was a community center and Muhammad's house. Muhammad lived, he had his rooms uh, adjoined to the mosque. And so people came and went into his house and out of his house regularly. And as his popularity grew and as he grew in his prophetic career, more and more people would show up into his house. And more often than not, they felt very comfortable coming into his house and leaving his house. Partly because Islam had a very clear egalitarian kind of social dynamic, when even the prophet, you know, Muhammad, here he is, the so-called, the supposed prophet of, of God, was the first among equals. He didn't have some type of unique station. So people felt that they had the right to access him whenever they wanted. This became really awkward with his wives, right, because his wives were also important teachers of the community, and they would enter into their private quarters. And so the idea of putting a hijab, a literal partition, between two people, and specifically it should be noted, between two men, Muhammad and uh, uh, Anas, is is a demarcation or partitioning of the private and the public sphere. The idea that when he's in public, he is the prophet, but when he is in private, he is the husband uh, he's just a husband and a man and that became an important distinction to make the idea that there is an element of privacy in islam that there's an element of, of that's just for you and your family that shouldn't be out in the public and constantly access so this is important that the hijab became more about partitioning the public and the private than it did about some type of physical garment or even what that garment may be. That's not to say that it had nothing to do with modesty and indeed we know that Muhammad's wives did wear some type of partitioning. This was generally a long headscarf put over their heads and went all the way down and indeed um, the very act of becoming Muhammad's wife had a euphemism. It's called darabat al-hijab, that is, putting on the hijab. It's attested to in the early commentaries, meaning that darabat al-hijab, putting on the hijab, meant you became Muhammad's wife. What does that tell us as historians? So here we are, we're reading all these kind of sacred scriptures, and we go, okay, well, what does this mean? Well, it means a couple things. One, that there is an idea of modesty within Islam, especially in the Quranic injunctions, but that it's not clearly defined as how that modesty would would be achieved other than some form of guarding yourself against immodesty. For men and women, it meant lowering their gaze. For women, it made sure it meant really don't let your bosoms fall out. Don't have, you know, your boobs out in the open. Now, one did that why does that particularly matter? Because some Arab tribes did have women with their bosoms out in the open. So there's a very specific context to that. And then there is we also know that there is this notion of a particular garb, one that covers the head, known as the and that this was uh, particularly associated with Muhammad's wives. And the idea therefore of, of Muhammad's wives having a particular garb associated with them is another component that we must recognize. What this shows us is that within the lifetime of Muhammad, there isn't a widespread veiling or Uh, covering up that happens. And indeed, when the verse is revealed, what we hear is that the women of Medina took off their aprons, tore their aprons, and then put them on their heads. What does that say? It says that not all women had head coverings in the first place. Second, that they only covered their hair as a way of associating themselves with the wise of Muhammad, that they too were as pious as the wise of Muhammad, and three, that there wasn't a clear, uniform idea of what that modesty meant. The hijab was really just about partitioning the private and the public, and the chamar was really just about guarding your, your kind of public and private selves, if you will and it isn't until much later that we associate the word hijab with the head covering that we see today. And what's interesting is I, it's important to recognize that the, Islam doesn't invent the head covering in any way, shape, or form. It's actually a widespread practice within the Near East. In fact, when I teach my class on the history of Islam, when we come to the sections about the hijab, what I do is I put up pictures, a bunch of different pictures, and some of the pictures are actually young Muslim women praying. And others are pictures of uh, Syriac Orthodox Christians, uh, Russian Orthodox Christians, etc. And I ask students a kind of trick question. I go, well, what religion is this? And they all go uniformly without fail. Oh, those are Muslims praying. And it isn't until I point out that some of the pictures are uh, Christians that they go, wait, why are they wearing a hijab? And that's the key, is that the head covering is almost indistinguishable between Eastern Orthodox churches, the practices of the Syriacs, the practices of the Chaldeans, the practices of the Russian Orthodox, etc., and that of Muslims. So how do we get to that moment when Islam becomes associated with the hijab uniquely, and how does the form of the hijab really come about? So to understand this, we need to understand garb and late antiquity. Ancient history, the oldest record that we can find about women covering themselves up comes from the Assyrian Empire. The Assyrian Empire is uh, one of the later uh, Babylonian empires. We have first uh, we have, uh, Sumerian empires. We have first uh, the Akkadians, then we have the Babylonians, and then we have the Assyrians. And the Assyrians write a series of laws, and these laws are very militaristic. They're enforced by coercive power, that is whipping, beheadings, etc. And the Assyrians write on a tablet, if the wives of a man or the daughters of a man go out into the streets, their heads are to be... Be veiled, the prostitute is not to be veiled, the slaves are not to veil themselves. Veiled harlots and slaves shall have their garments ceased, and fifty blows inflicted upon them, and a bitumen poured on their head." So for the Assyrians, veiling was important, but veiling was an act done by upper-class women. The Assyrian women would demarcate their social standing by putting on a headscarf. And this was common in the broader Mediterranean. We know, for example, that the Roman women also wore some type of head covering, but because they were in warmer climates, more uh, uh, temperate climates, warmer and temperate climates, and they didn't have the type of dry desert heat, they instead had the muggy Mediterranean heat, their clothes were more diaphanous, and so were their veils. It would usually be held in their hair by some type of hair clip, or comb and then it would flow down their backs. This was a common Roman garb, so it didn't cover the entirety of the hair, but it marked the social status of an upper-class patrician woman. Uh, The vestal virgins of the Romans, this is the priestesses of Hestia or Vestia, who are uh, considered to be uh, very sacred figures in Roman society, they would wear veils, and their veils looked a lot like the ones that nuns wear today. So the kind of habit that a nun wears and the head covering that a nun wears is something that comes from the Vestal Virgins, and this becomes part of Christianity. Christianity is a product of the Mediterranean world in late antiquity. First uh, Corinthians uh, chapter eleven verses four to seven states, "Every woman who prays or prophecies with her head uncovered dishonors her head." So early Christian women also wore head coverings, and not just when they were in quote unquote church, but everywhere. Because remember, during the rise of Christianity, there are no churches. You were preaching in. in in mausoleums, and in forums, and in places, even secret places like graveyards. So you were constantly uh, preaching and praying, but you would have to cover your head. So they wore it. We know that Jews as well wore a head covering, though it's not clear whether Jews, this comes out of scriptural interpretation or an adoption of kind of Roman society. Um, We know, for example, from the uh, Babylonian Talmud, Rav Sheshet, says Seeing the hair of a woman is erva, which means immodest. So the idea was that women, in order to be modest, had to cover their hair. And the kind of practices of women veiling themselves and women's modesty is known as tizinut in in hebrew and in particular we see it in byzantine society byzantine society which adopts a much more greek style than a roman style of veiling in the greek world women not only veiled but if you were a matron that is a a woman that was the head of the household you were secluded meaning you didn't go outside you would send younger women and you would send slaves to go out and do stuff in the agora you yourself never left your house. You were secluded away. The idea of this kind of private sphere that was your domain, and that's it. So that was a important uh, kind of understand. That was an, this is important to understand the kind of culture of late antique world, and it's in this world that Islam emerges. And so the hijab shouldn't be seen as a uniquely Muslim practice, but part of the broader cultural practices of the late antique ancient mediterranean near east ancient greeks did it the romans did it the uh, before them the assyrians did it christians did it jews did it and muslims themselves did it so now that we understand the kind of cultural historical context we can also see where Islam fits into this. Islam is a continuation of some of these traditions. And while we see that some Muslim women, particularly the Medinans and upper class Meccan women did it, um, and the wives of Muhammad, we also know that it was not particularly widespread during Muhammad's own time. Meaning that Muhammad didn't enforce any type of garb on women. He didn't say you have to wear this or you have to wear that. And that women's dress varied from tribe to tribe. And again, this ref- it's likely that that some of this referred to social status, that the Meccan women who were upper class were very comfortable wearing headscarves as a marker that they were different, and, and the Medinan women as a sign of piety. We also know that slaves were not allowed to wear headscarves, and so the idea of Muhammad saying that you can wear some type of veil, scarf, or a head covering is almost an, an, an attempt to make this egalitarian, to make it completely and totally socially equal, to break away from the idea that, only the elite women could wear these type of clothing. Any woman can. Remember, in Arabian society, borrowing from the Byzantine world, borrowing from the Mesopotamian world, Only elite women did it. Only elite Meccan women did it. Only the Quraysh and certain tribes. Other women went bare bare chested, Other women didn't wear any uh, any of these type of head coverings. But most that lived in these desert societies would wear something to cover themselves, but elite women in particular would wear something that would demarc themselves or mark themselves as separate from working women and slaves. And working women and slaves were not allowed to wear the type of clothing that elite women were wearing. So in some regards, the verse acts as an attempt to create a sort of more egalitarian tradition here, saying that all women can do this, and it would be a mark of piety. But it never clearly defines what it looks like. And so as a result, within Muhammad's lifetime, there is no uniform hijab that exists. Um, Some women wear head coverings, some women do not. But by the time after Muhammad's death, by the time of the Umayyads, that is the first Arab dynasty that moves the uh, capital from, from the Arabian Peninsula to Damascus, for those of you that are interested, season one covers the history of the Umayyads. You can go and listen to that episode. We see that the veiling becomes more common amongst elite Muslim women. They borrow what is known as the Discipuli Veili, or the Discipuli Veli the discipline of the veil that the Byzantine Christian women wear. And so Muslim women particularly of the aristocratic class, almost in kind of opposition to the kind of traditional message of creating a private and public sphere, creating piety and modesty, wear it as an act of social status, that they wear a particular head covering. This head covering is long, so it differs from the Arabian khamar that we've talked about, some of our that we've talked about so far. Um, that is not a scarf that they wear on their shoulders that they they were recommended to throw over their bosom. Instead, they wear a veil very similar to what the Byzantines wear. It's high up on the head, held by some type of knot or comb, and it hangs down long, almost creating a sort of a walking mobile seclusion in some ways, a certain type of tent, if you will. They would wear it, and it would come all the way down long. And this was a very popular practice amongst the Umayyads. And it it continues. When, it, when the Muslim empire becomes more Persianified, they adopt the idea of secluding women in particular. Uh, this is where we start to see the first examples of a harem. Right. So up until now, we don't have really a concept of a harem. A harem just means a, a sacred space or a forbidden space. Um, and we see that, that wives are secluded away. Up until this point, it's like seclusion is not a common Muslim practice. Muslim women fought alongside of Muslim men. They worked alongside Muslim women. They were very clearly out in the public. There's dozens upon dozens of records of Muhammad interacting with Muslim women in the public sphere. They taught, they prayed, they taught. They were very important transmitters of the Hadiths. Um, but during the kind of Persianification of the Muslim empire during the, what's known as the Abbasid period, and again, you can listen the first season for the history of the Abbasids, we start to see a clear sign of seclusion amongst royal women. And so the king, or the caliph at the time, would have his wives secluded off in a kind of separate quarter of the palace. One part of the palace was public, that is where people were allowed to come in and make their petitions. He would walk around his gardens, and another section of the palace would be separate, and that would be secluded, and that would be the earliest ideas of a harem. Um, and this is, you know, uh, sometimes we hear some kind of interesting responses from Iranian nationalists in particular who, who look to kind of a pre-Islamic Iran and go, oh, well, the hijab and the headscarf came in from from the Arabs. And when we look at this history, that's just not true. The headscarf and covering was already practiced by the Persianate world in, in what is modern-day Iran and Afghanistan, borrowing directly from the uh, Assyrians who had conquered the entire region, so Islam was a continuation of it, and an element adding onto it a sort of religious dimension and, and a component of it that w- that indicated piety, uh, not just modesty. And then the Persianification of Islam created the seclusion with the coming of the Turks and the Mongols, in particular, who were a strong tribal society. The harem was codified into law and it became a a normal practice so those of you who are uh, game of thrones fans um if you ever remember that scene with with danny when she gets taken by um the dothraki she draw her dragon just saves her she's caught by the dothraki and they take her to this kind of sacred place where all the widows of of the former um khans right the leaders if you will of these various tribes of the various khalasars they have to live in this area all the widows Uh, and they're secluded and they're they're kind of sanctified and they're considered untouchable but they have to live alone and away from society that is part that is kind of weird interesting fantasy but has historical connections that particular experience is part of the Turco-Persian world as codified first by the Ottomans and then the Mughals, this idea of women as secluded. By this time, the garb uh, can sometimes cover up the face. Interestingly enough, the face covering, or what's known as niqab, is usually a Bedouin practice aimed at protecting women from the desert heat and from sand, but then becomes adopted by the coming of the Mongols, the Turco-Persian empires that emerge. They adopt that particular practice with the idea of secluding women away from men, having a completely separate palace. And that's when it's codified into law under the kind of Umayyad time period, you start to see it go beyond the palace. So under the Abbasids, it's only the palace that's doing this, right? You have the women's quarter, you have the public sphere. By the time of the Ottomans, houses are modeled after the sultan's palace and so that when you would come into a house there would be this kind of public sphere and then the woman would be secluded away and in particular they would be behind some type of curtain curtain of some sort. This becomes known as the parda in the uh, kind of Indo-Persian world in Afghanistan, India, etc. And that kind of curtain to separate the men and the women becomes particularly popular thanks to the Timurids and then the Ottomans and the Mughals after them. The Timurids are the ones that really adopt the kind of Mongol practices Fused it with the Persian culture and codify it and the Ottomans pick up after them, the Ottomans and the Mughals. And indeed today, if you were to go to a lot of mosques, you would see a similar demarcation where men pray up at the front. Behind them, there's some type of curtain or barrier and then women pray there we find the same thing or that you would find a completely separate women's quarter where the men would pray at one area and the women would pray upstairs or in a separate room. That particular configuration, the idea of partitioning, is a reinterpretation of that old verse of the hijab that we talked about, the partitioning of the private and the public sphere that Muhammad was talking about, the idea of keeping your private life private, the idea of Creating some type of balance, the idea of protecting his privacy as this public figure is reinterpreted in the Ottoman world and the Mughal world. First in the palaces, and then in the ordinary lives of upper class men, and in the mosques. So the mosque configuration that we see today, the idea of men and women having to be separate, doesn't really come around until the 1500s. That's that's you know almost 700 years plus after Muhammad. The early Islamic period doesn't have that separation and demarcation. The mosques are are far more complicated. There's instances of Muslims praying side by side, Muslim men and women praying side by side, instances of Muslim women praying in the back and Muslim women men praying in the front, but there being no partition between them. It's more complicated and there's regional variations. But it doesn't become a common practice of separating them with a real partition until the Ottoman time period. And this is when we start to see a change also in the garb. So up until now, we had seen a very a variety of different garbs. We see the early Islamic period, the time of Muhammad, as really a shawl or a scarf that's thrown over the bosom. Some women would use it to, to cover their heads. Some women would not. That's very similar to the kind of chadar that women wear in Afghanistan. In the kind of Umayyad period, we see a more Byzantine look in which the headscarf is or the head covering is affixed at the top and then it is allowed to hang down. In the Abbasid period, we start to see more and more of kind of veiling practices and it isn't until the Turco-Persian time period, particularly the Timurids, the Mughals, and the Ottomans, that we start to see the head covering become more formal. Ottoman women in particular would cover their entire head, and only allow their faces to be shown. This is when we start to see what looks like the modern hijab today. You know, the hijab that kind of wraps around the head and is affixed with pins, and only the face is showing. That comes out of the Ottoman time period. What happens is that it becomes a way of women signifying that they were a wife or an upper-class woman Uh, in the harem, whereas the other women in the harem, slaves, etc., would not wear that particular head covering. So again, there is this tie to social status. If you wore that particular head covering and only your face was showing, that was your way of saying... I am the wife of the sultan, or the wife of the head of this household. Um, If you want to see a great example of this, go and check YouTube or Google or whatever it is you fancy kids do. Erdogan, the uh, leader of Turkey, his wife, she wears, the head covering she wears, is very Ottoman, and it comes out of that time period. Okay, before we go any further, now we've come to this point in history where we see the hijab as we come to know it starting to take shape. We see the way that it looks, we see how it's related to Ottoman history how it's adopted into the practices first as a social act as an act of demarcating your social status and how it comes out of a fusion of turco-persian culture that reinterprets the older quranic verse of the hijab that originally had slightly different meanings and connotations we're going to take a break from this big rambling and what we're going to do is a quick rapid fire round all right so we've got three questions this time around can i wear the headscarf to cover my bald spot was the hijab ever enforced and is the hijab and the burqa the same thing so the first question can i wear the headscarf to cover my bald spot this is clearly a question submitted by our sound engineer here at head on history who is uh making a dig at me for those of you that aren't looking at the avatar or the cover of the of the head on history I am clearly a bald man, so can I wear the headscarf to cover my bald spot? No, you may not. Though, the kufi, which is the male equivalent, which we'll be talking about in a minute, is a really useful tactic to covering up bald spots. And there are many a men that I have known that are bald, but they wear a kufi. Was the hijab in force is the second question. The answer to this is no. Up until most of Islamic history, for most of Islamic history, there was no enforcement of the hijab. The hijab was worn as an act of either piety or of social status and had both of those connotations so we want to be clear about that. I'm also not dismissing the pious connotations of it. I'm not saying that oh only elite women wore it and you know you shouldn't be wearing a hijab. No, I'm saying that it has this history is multifaceted and both of these have both of those meanings are part of the hijab. On one hand for women it meant modesty for uh, it meant uh, piety and for others it meant social status that you were an elite woman. Um, but it wasn't enforced until the, Turco, the Turco-Persian period. Um, as far as we can tell, I think the Abbasid period is the first time that royal women, uh, it's enforced upon them. The Timurids is the first time that we start to see elite, uh, being enforced with elite women. And it's the Ottomans that first come out with the idea that, no, you to—you got to veil yourself. you got to wear this head covering uh, if you're part of the elite. Um, and again, the elite is the key word here. And the final one, is the hijab and the burqa the same? No. The various head coverings have regional variations. The niqab, for example, is a predominantly uh, Bedouin use. The bit niqab is the face veil that is something that is worn to cover the nose and mouth and only shows the eyes. This comes out of the Bedouin world because of the need to protect the face. And it isn't really popular in the Muslim world at all until relatively recently. Um, The hijab starts to become associated with the head covering specifically during the Ottoman time period before that. Um, it can have a variety of different meanings, and the burqa referred to a much longer dress. Um, eventually, it takes on the form of completely covering the face with a couple holes in it. And we're going to talk about how those dresses come to be, and that's that's what we're going to move on to next. So that's our head on. Or that's our rapid fire round here on head and history. So now that we've established this kind of idea that that the hijab had a variety of different meanings and the complicated meanings, and that it, ha- it draws from a variety of different cultural practices practices that it could mean piety and modesty and it could also mean social status and that it wasn't until the ottoman time period that the form that we know as the hijab really came about so about 1500 year the year 1500 or so is when we start to see it even after that we don't see a particularly widespread notion of enforcing the veil there is no uniform garb amongst muslim women and men but we see a cultural diffusion or uh, that happens Um, and the muslim men in particular wear just like muslim women Head coverings. The two most common ones are kufi, which is a type of skull cap that um, may have been inspired by the Jewish kippah. Um, and the fez and the turban. The turban is the third one. The fez, for those of you that don't know what it is, is uh, what Doctor Who wears, the 11th Doctor in particular. Uh, Matt Smith's Doctor, he goes, Fezzes are cool, and he wears a fez. Uh, if you don't know Doctor Who, shame on you. But uh, you, could know, you could see what a fez is if you've ever seen Aladdin. Uh, Aladdin wears it, and Abu wears it. It's the kind of brimless hat, a kind of uh, red uh, felt cap that they wear, and the turban is a long piece of cloth that is wrapped around the head. None of them are enforced on Muslim men, but Muslim men wear it as a sign of either learning, or as a cultural practice, or a sign of standing. Women predominantly start to wear the hijab. And again, this is still the upper echelons of society. In the 19th century, you start to have the emergence of what is known as uh, modernist movements. These are movements that are dealing with the colonial realities namely that there is a that that there is a new power ruling over these lands probably mostly most of them are britain and france britain and france kind of divides up and it has a bunch of spheres of influence france for example in lebanon whereas britain and egypt um, they start to exert their influence and the, the colonials bring or the colonists bring with them victorian ideas of gender that men own the public sphere and women are in the private sphere, that there's a clear separation of men and women. And so the modernists, the modernists who are are Arab, Muslims, etc., who are trying to forge their own nation states, start to borrow some of these European ideas of dividing up men and women, and particularly dividing them up by formal dress. European modernity, people often forget this, is marked by uniformity. Not just military uniformity, but men and women wearing very specific type of clothing to indicate that they were part of modern civilized society. Up until this point in the Muslim world, the clothing is varied. While you have some conformity amongst the elites, men and women wear a variety of different things. The modernists attempting to create Um, laws and rules that would bring their societies into the so-called civilized world, whatever the F that means, they start to create laws. We see this, for example, in uh, the 1925 with Ataturk, right? So Ataturk is, Kemal Ataturk is one of the modernists and secularists in Turkey. With the collapse of the Ottoman Empire and the division of the Ottoman Empire's territories amongst the british and the french he needs to create a french character he needs to create a turkish character in order to establish a turkish country in order to establish turkey he goes okay well what is turkey the french speak french the british spring speak english the french have a french character they dress a certain way the British dress a certain way. They have a British character. What is Turkish character? And how is it different from Ottoman character? What he does is he bans religious garbs because he goes, that's Ottoman. That's the religious people. We need to become modern. For example, he writes, he gives this very famous uh, speech. My friends, there is no need to seek and revive the costume of Turan. A civilized international dress is worthy and appropriate of our nation and we will wear it. Boots or shoes on our fees trousers on our legs shirt and tie jacket and waistcoat and of course to complete these a cover with a brim on your head i want to make this clear this head covering is called a hat so what is he talking about he's not just saying hey look check it out the waistcoat the waistcoat is really cool guess what women dig the trousers ties they're sexy they're really in he's creating Turkish a Turkish character, a Turkish national character. Turkish people look a certain way and for him it was adopting Western styles of clothing, specifically the waistcoat and the pants, etc. remember Muslims wear kind of long flowing garbs. But there's a very important part to this. He goes we wear a hat, a cover with a brim on our heads. A brim means that kind of outer rim of a hat. Muslims generally don't have head coverings with a brim. A turban doesn't have it, a fez doesn't have it, and a kufi doesn't have it. And why is that? That's because Muslims make their salat five times a day. And the salat requires sujood, that is a prostration in which you put your forehead to the ground. If you have a brim on your hat like a baseball cap does, that brim gets in the way of you kneeling. So the act of literally removing brimless hats and brimless head coverings, turbans, kippahs, and uh, fezes, is an act of saying, well, we are secular in public. It doesn't matter, you could be religious in private, but we are secular in the public. And it isn't just him giving fashion advice, it's Codified into law. November 25th, 1925, Law Number 61 uh, is called the Law Concerning the Wearing of the Hat. And what he does is he bans the fez. You're not allowed to wear the fez anymore. You have to wear these Western kind of clothing. And we see this not just in Turkey, but all in the wide, wide Middle East. All the kind of modernists and secularists do the exact same thing. Uh, Reza Shah, Muhammad Reza Shah in Iran does it. First, his father does it. Reza Shah does it first. Reza Shah bans religious headgarbs. He bans the hijab, which in the uh, Iranian tradition known as the chadar or the chadur, which is a much, it's kind of a longer garment and reflection of the kind of Persian garb of the Abbasids. He completely bans it. You're not allowed to wear it. And teachers in particular are not allowed to wear it because young women, right, they need to go to these Western institutions. And so what we see is that the enforcement of garbs, that is, dress code, enforcing the dress code, is not actually an Islamic thing. It's a secular thing. Secular modernists who are attempting to reform society from the top down are the ones that are creating these laws that force people to wear the things that they do. Muslims, it was a private decision or it was an act of social status. But it was not something that was enforced by the courts or some type of legal authority or any type of coercive power. The police weren't going to come around and go, why aren't you wearing your hijab? No, it was a uniquely secularist action. And that's important to recognize. We sometimes forget that, that the history of the Middle East, you know, today we think of the burqa, and we think Taliban, forcing women into the garbs. But it was actually the secularists that do it first. And we see this, I guess, in some ways, even more contemporaneously with the burkini, right? That's a secular country, France, that is enforcing and regulating what women are allowed to wear, in this case, banning the burkini. And so it isn't until much later that we start to see a backlash to this. When the modernists fail, namely in the 1970s, and then early 1960s, you have the rise of a counter-movement. A counter-movement that go, these modern secularists failed us. Our governments are corrupt, they're totalitarian, they're not able to protect us. We need to return to an Islamic character, not just a Turkish character, not just an Iranian character, not just an Afghan character. Um, King Amanullah does the same thing for the modernists. Not just that, we need to return to kind of an Islamic character. And in a sort of backlash, the hijab and the head covering, the fez, the turban, the hijab, becomes a sign of resistance. It's a way of saying F you to total- the totalitarian governments. It's a way of resisting the government. And this is an important part of the movements, that we see that these people go, I'm going to start wearing these as an act of resistance. And why is this important? Because even in the uh, modern time period, um, the headscarf was a predominantly minority act. So if you take something like Egypt, um, a very famous uh, historian uh, writes a great book that I'm going to recommend later. But it's a woman named Margot Badran, and she's a historian of, of uh, North Africa and of Islam and gender and sexuality. She writes, urban women of all classes and women of the rural gender veiled their faces if they went outside. Peasant women did not veil because the custom was incompatible with their work in the field. So in the 19th century, in the early 20th century, veiling was still an act done by mostly elite women. The average Muslim who worked out in the fields or out in the street didn't either wear a veil or a hijab in any way, shape, or form. Though she may dress modestly still, um, like with some loose garments. And it isn't until this kind of moment in the 1950s, 60s, and 70s with the resistance movement that that kind of elite garb is democratized, and everybody starts to wear it. Students in particular start to put on the headscarf as a way of resisting government control. They say the government has no right to regulate what we can and we cannot wear. You cannot ban the fez. You cannot ban the headscarf. We can wear what we want. And they become movements of solidarity, really important movements and symbols of kind of Muslim unification around the world. An um'ak, sort of global ummah that comes together in resistance. And this is kind of interesting because it contradicts the, the Ataturk's definition, right? Because Ataturk is also trying to create a global so, uh, society. Remember, he says a civilized international dress. The Turk was a global international character, he was civilized well, in the same regards, the hijab the fez, the turban became a symbol of international Muslim solidarity and so when these secular governments fell Gamal Abdel Nasser uh, you know the, 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 uh, the Reza Shah, Muhammad Reza Shah and the Pahlavi dynasty in Iran they were replaced with various Islamic movements, these kind of coalitions of students and activists and feminists who were using the hijab and religious garb as a sign of social solidarity and resistance all of a sudden these new governments come in and they go you know what those secularists had it a good idea we're going to borrow their tactic and we're going to enforce the religious garb so Khomeini comes into power up until this point before the Pahlavi's Iranian women never were had to wear the chadar it was an enforced and it isn't until Reza Shah and his son Muhammad Reza Shah that you start to see secular dress enforced where they force women to take off the headscarves Well, women put them back on as a sign of resistance, and Khomeini goes, yeah, I'm with you guys, 1979 happens, Iranian revolution, Islamic revolution of Iran, and he comes into power and he goes, you know what, I really love the idea that you all are wearing headscarves, we're going to make it into a law. So it's like this weird kind of backlash, by forcing women to take off the headscarf, by forcing them to conform to your ideas of modernity women resisted and fought back, men and women both. And then when they successfully fought back against their governments, the new pan-Islamic mo- Islamic movements came in and went, we're going to do the exact same thing. In other ways, the, the kind of Islamist governments that we see today that enforce the hijab from Saudi Arabia to Iran to the way that the Taliban did in the 90s, they are all uniquely modern manifestations. They're a modern interpretation. There's an attempt they borrow from their secular brothers and sisters in their ideology that they can enforce the garb. When in reality, the true history here indicates that it was a private decision, that women would wear it as a sign of piety, women would wear it as a sign of social status, but it was not something that was enforced from the top down. Muslims didn't come in and go, women, you have to put headscarves on. Not at all, in any way, shape, or form. And women wore a variety of different Garbs, that it is actually a backlash to the modern secularists. So, there's this weird moment in modern history, and contemporary history. We have both the secularists trying to regulate what women can wear and the Islamists trying to regulate what women can wear. And the Islamists are kind of doing, or when we say Islamists, I refer to kind of a, any type of government that attempts to bring Islam as a political ideology. And you can check out last season to, to understand that more. My last episode was exactly about that in the last season about political Islam, but these governments are basically going, okay, we're going to do the exact same thing that the government did before us. We're going to create regulations, rules, and laws in order to enforce women's garbs. Today, most women have adopted the kind of Ottoman style that started to develop over the from the 1500s on, in which the head covering uh, cov- or the hijab covers the hair and most of the neck, and the shoulders, and the bosom, but only leaves the face open, so there's a kind of round circle, the way it's tied, it's a particularly popular uh, practice, thanks to the power of the Ottoman world, and uniting the uh, vast swat of Muslim territories, and it continues to remain varied, Muslim women wear the headscarf, Muslim women don't wear the headscarf, in some ways reflecting the kind of traditional and original history of islam they some wear it some don't wear it some wear it as a form of uh, piety and for many others it is about identity formation it's about the resistance to an attempt to strip muslim women of their identity and create a new national character be it iranian be it afghan be it egyptian be it turkish and instead a sort a sign of saying we are part of a global muslim a global Muslim community. So the hijab has become a very important marker of identity and has taken on all sorts of meanings that may not have been there at its tradition. But such is the nature of all religions. Religions are transformed by their historical circumstances. Religions are shaped by their experiences. And religions evolve. No religion remains the exact same from the time that it was revealed or uh, developed until the contemporary hopefully this was a useful uh podcast for you it was kind of a a my short attempt at doing this long history of the hijab there's a lot more going on here there's a lot more that we could have covered that we didn't go fully into the porta we didn't go fully into uh, modesty laws which come into play after the 70s modesty laws become very important in places like afghanistan and iran and even in some places like uh, egypt Um, we didn't see uh, we didn't look at some of the colonial laws, unfortunately. But if you have any questions about this, don't hesitate to use the hashtag headonhistory or hit me up on Instagram or Twitter at A-A-O-L-O-M-I. I'm happy to answer further questions, and maybe we'll do like a part two sometime in the future. But for now, Hopefully this was useful and you've got a a short kind of glimpse at the complicated and long history of the hijab and how it relates to gender, piety, social status, and how men have also had some type of religious garb that they wore as part of their identity. I'm going to conclude with a couple books and then that will be it. The first book that I'm going to recommend, and this is kind of the definitive book that really opened up the question about gender and the debates about gender, is Leila Ahmed's Women and Gender in Islam, Historical Roots of a Modern Debate. Brilliantly, Brilliant work. I don't fully agree with her entirely. Uh, she kind of... Uh, reinterprets a lot of the later developments as just misogyny but there's more to more complex histories there but it's a really good starting place uh for a book the next is someone that i actually quoted in in the podcast and that's margot badran gender and the making of modern egypt Uh, it's actually called feminist islam and the nation gender and the making of modern egypt this is a really great book if you want to see how feminist islam develops Um, If you want to see it, gender is at the heart of nation-making and the creation of national character. The next book that I'm I'm going to recommend uh, is is probably one of my favorite books on gender. And it's also very timely in some regards. Uh, It uh, was released... uh, after the Afghan invasion And it was by a, a, a female anthropologist Known as uh, Leela Abu Lughod Her uh, mother was a very famous historian Janet Abu Who wrote b- Before European Hegemony Really great, great book And some of the most famous books on Cairo Leela Abu Lughod wrote this great book Called Do Muslim Women Need a Saving? And it's the question about That really comes to this idea of Gender at the heart of imperialism The idea of, oh, we need to rescue women And do Muslim women need that saving? Great book. Highly recommend it. And the final one is a kind of, you know, fun addition in case your <laughs> three books wasn't enough. is uh, minu Mu'alem's Between Warrior Brother and Veiled Sister, Islamic Fundamentalism and the Politics of Patriarchy in Iran. It really does a great job of explaining the sort of backlash to uh, an attempt to force women to wear certain type of clothing. A kind of backlash to and how Islamic fundamentalism and religious garb became part of identity entity making in Iran and an act of resistance. Thank you for tuning in. Uh, It's always a pleasure to have you join me on these podcasts. Hopefully you enjoyed it. And remember, stay smart, you beautiful history nerds.